Police in Jerusalem are trying to break up protests following the approval of a controversial overhaul of Israel's judicial system. It's Tuesday, July 25th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the new national monument paying tribute to Emmett Till, the black teenager lynched in Mississippi in 1955. Spaces like this one acknowledge the truths of how this nation has gotten where it has gotten and say objectively that we have to do differently and better. Also, the push to improve safety for U.S. Postal Service workers and this hour. Curtis Blow was the first rapper to sign a major label deal. He really showed all the aspiring MCs from the very beginning of hip-hop that permanence was possible. Celebrating 50 years of hip-hop with a look at the legacy of Curtis Blow. Mostly sunny with a chance for rain today in the 80s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden will sign a proclamation today establishing a national monument to honor Emmett Till. The 14-year-old black boy was brutally killed in 1955 after he was accused of whistling at a white woman in Mississippi. NPR's Barbara Sprunt reports today would have been Till's 82nd birthday. The new monument will tell the story of Till's life, the acquittal of his murderers, and the activism of his mother, Mamie Till Mobley, whom White House Press Secretary Crean Jean-Pierre called a catalyst for the civil rights movement. We need to continue to tell that story, tell his story, and not just his story, the story of his mother. Uh, and what she tried to do to make sure that what he went through was not lost. The monument will include space at the church in Chicago where thousands gathered for Till's funeral, as well as the courthouse in Mississippi where his killers were acquitted by an all-white jury in 1955. This will be President Biden's fourth new national monument since taking office. Barbara Sprint, NPR News. Washington. Israel's Medical Association is on strike in protest of a new law limiting the Supreme Court's powers of oversight over the government. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Jerusalem groups are turning to the Israeli Supreme Court to challenge the law. Doctors are on a 24-hour strike protesting the law. Hospitals are operating on limited schedule. Israel's right-wing government defends the law. It accuses the judiciary of liberal overreach and says the elected government should have more freedom to implement its policies. The Supreme Court must now decide whether to take up petitions challenging the law. The court has never intervened in the passage of this kind of law, which is the equivalent of a constitutional amendment. Advocates for Palestinian rights argue the new law could lead to the placement of professional civil servants with loyalists who could approve further discrimination against Palestinians. Meanwhile, in the occupied West Bank, Israel says troops killed three Palestinians who opened fire on soldiers. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Jerusalem. The Justice Department is suing Texas over some floating barriers placed in the Rio Grande. Texas Governor Greg Abbott is trying to stop migrants from crossing into his state. Texas Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez supports the governor, He blamed President Biden for failing to secure the border. Gonzalez says that the floating buoys are a very small part of what Texas is trying to do to stop migrants from crossing. I represent two-thirds of the Texas-Mexico border, over 800 miles. This buoy is a quarter mile, so it's relatively small in comparison to the overall border, but it's the only thing we're talking about. This month, the Biden administration said the number of migrants illegally crossing the U.S.-Mexico border is the lowest it's been since early 2021. White House officials say the Biden administration's new border policies are responsible for that. The new policies are being challenged in court. You're listening 
to NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. The Healy administration is pushing the legislature to finalize its annual budget. The new fiscal year began July 1st, but lawmakers have not yet signed off on a budget. Both the House and Senate say they have a ways to go on a budget compromise. Right now, the state is running on an interim budget that's meant to carry through the end of the month. Healy has not said if she'll file a second interim budget to get the state through August. The company cleaning up the Pilgrim nuclear power station will not be allowed to dump contaminated wastewater into Cape Cod Bay. State regulators denied the permit sought by Holtec. The company wanted to discharge up to 1.1 million gallons of wastewater into the bay. Local politicians are applauding the decision. State Senator Susan Moran represents areas of Plymouth and Barnstable counties. This is very welcome news today from DEP, and I thank them, but this fight is not over today. Holtec says the company is disappointed with the decision. The state is allowing public public comment on the decision until the end of August. Some state lawmakers want to crack down on ticket price gouging. They held a hearing yesterday on several bills that would regulate the resale of tickets to concerts and sporting events. Jim Holtzman founded Ace Ticket in Boston. He testified that he sees the urgency behind the push for these regulations. I am 100 percent behind consumer, you know, player pricing. I think that unfortunately the Internet has kind of changed the ticketing world and there's hundreds of bad actors, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, some in this room, some not in this room. I think that, you know, the good thing is it seems like everybody's finally coming together and realizing, hey, we have to do something. He says he supports the bill's rules banning automated bots that scoop scoop up tickets before consumers can buy them. Yesterday's hearing came in part in response to dramatic markups for tickets to Taylor Swift's concerts at Gillette Stadium in May. One of the newest additions to Boston Skyline is up for an International Architecture Award. The building is Boston University's Center for Computing and Data Sciences on Commonwealth Avenue. It's been nicknamed the Jenga Building for its resemblance to the game of stacked blocks. Architect Lucy Timbers worked on the project with the firm KPMB. In such an urban site, you know, we can't make a normal campus where you can walk between things. So what we tried to do is what we call a vertical campus. And that's what all of the shifting boxes are that are in the tower. And each group of sort of two or three floors has um, access to a terrace. Winners will be named at this year's World Architecture Festival. It's 7.06. WBUR supporters include the Lodestar Foundation inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. The Red Sox host Atlanta tonight for the first of two games at Fenway Park. Mostly sunny today with a chance for showers or storms. It'll be in the upper 80s. Another chance for rain overnight tonight with temperatures in the 60s. Sunny tomorrow and near 90. Right now it's 71 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We have advice for people dating after 50 coming up after some news. People of all ages are protesting in Israel. Doctors and lawyers are among those objecting to the parliament removing a check on its power. Some of the sounds of the past day. 
And we've heard similar sounds for months. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his allies passed a change that effectively increases their own power. Netanyahu says he will begin a dialogue now with opposition politicians over the remainder of his judicial changes. He wants more. Physicist Shikma Bressler has become a leading figure in the protest movement, and she's on the line from Israel. Welcome to the program. Hello. Uh, There is a sense in which the majority in the Knesset would like to say this is over. They acted, they voted, they outvoted your side, which walked out. Can you go on after that defeat? Yeah, well, we have no choice. I wish we shouldn't have to. But what they started yesterday is basically a salami routine similar to the one that uh, took place in Poland ahead of us and in Hungary. And if they proceed and they intend to proceed, they tell us that they intend to proceed, then we will be remaining with an empty democracy with no heart, actually. I would like to... I would like to explain what you're saying to an American audience or remind people if they don't follow it closely. When you say in Poland and in Hungary, you're talking about democratic states where there was a leader who has become more authoritarian and removed checks on his power over time. Is that what your concern is here? Exactly. And completely emptying the the, the sole heart of the democratic uh, values, the liberal values from uh, every authority and every, you know, uh, constitution. In institution and constitution, basically, of the state. I would also like to remind maybe the audience or tell the audience, uh, people may not be aware, that the only uh, check and balances that the Israeli system has on the government uh, activities are coming from the judicial system. We have no presidency, we have no second house, we have no constitution. So the only checks and balances system has to do with the... um, with the law system and the judicial system. And what uh, was happening yesterday is that the only effective way of the judicial system to uh, overrule or to reject decision which has no reason in them uh, taken by the government are basically is now no longer there. Uh, that means that, uh, for instance, they can uh, nominate and non-legitimate people for uh, important uh, uh, duties and so on. And this is what they are willing and interested in doing. This is why they came with this idea in the beginning. Our colleague Daniel Estrin Estrin gave an example of this recently, that there was an attempt to put someone in the government who'd been recently convicted of a crime. The Supreme Court said that's not reasonable, and so it couldn't be done, and that is a power that's being taken away from the Supreme Court. But would you answer, please, the uh, argument of proponents for this change? They will essentially say, well, we're in favor of democracy. These unelected judges shouldn't be telling us what to do. We have a majority in the Knesset. We've got 64 votes. We should do what we want. How do you answer that? Yeah, so I think that non-majority can do what it, what it wants. No majority can overrule the basic, uh, you know, values and the basic ideas of freedoms and liberty and, uh, and equality. And this is what they intend to do. This is who they are, who this government is led by, highly extremist, racist group of people, which uh, unfortunately Prime Minister Netanyahu um, decide to follow instead of leading. So I would say that no majority whatsoever, this is why, for for instance, you have, you know, uh, a, a constitution, right? No majority whatsoever has the right to over, override or to uh, take away uh, basic, uh, you know, basic uh, ideas like, like, as I said, uh, equality 
and uh, and uh, liberty. So I'm so. I'm interested in something you just said there uh, because you said Netanyahu decided to follow extremists instead of leading. Netanyahu was on this program a few months ago, just as he was forming his government, and he said of the right wingers in his coalition, "They are joining me. I'm not joining them. I will tell them what to do. I will protect people's rights." It sounds like you do not have any faith that that is the case. Yeah, I think that Prime Minister Netanyahu have said many things in uh, in English to the U.S. Um, um, administration and to the U.S. people. And uh, but when he's when he speak in Hebrew, he said completely different things. And when you look at his uh, actions and what his government is actually doing, you would see that. Uh, unfortunately, I have no reason, no other word, by saying that he was lying to you guys over there. And uh, you just need to read, you know to read the lines and see in between the lines and see what is actually going on here and what is happening here. Um, this is just not the true uh, truth, unfortunately. Sheikma Bressler is one of the leaders of Israel's protest movement, which has vowed to continue despite a defeat in the Knesset yesterday. Thank you so much. Thank you. President Biden will sign a proclamation today that will designate three sites a national monument for Emmett Till and his mother, Mamie Till Mobley. It's been decades in the making as people wanted to do more to commemorate the lynching of the 14-year-old in 1955. The Gulf State's newsroom's Maya Miller takes us to the Mississippi Delta, where Till's murder changed the landscape of the South. Down a winding gravel road, through miles of corn and soy, stands a bulletproof sign. In a deeply rural area, barely accessible by map, it's the only indication that something happened here. Here, at Grable Landing in August 1955, Emmett Till's body was pulled from the Tallahatchie River. This is a very, you know, well-accepted approximation of where his body was recovered. That's Benjamin Salisbury with the Emmett Till Interpretive Center in Sumner, Mississippi. He's giving me a tour of part of the new National Monument. Till was only 14 years old when he was accused of whistling at a white woman in Money, Mississippi. His kidnapping, torture, and murder catapulted Mississippi into the national spotlight that summer and helped launch the civil rights movement. I think it's through the recognition of these of spaces like this one, right, to be able to acknowledge, for better, for worse, and otherwise, the truth of how this nation has gotten where it has gotten, and then be able to say objectively um, that we have to do differently and better. Another space that's a part of the new monument will be hundreds of miles north in Chicago at Roberts Temple Church of God in Christ. That's where Mamie Till Mobley defied those in power to have an open casket funeral for Emmett. Over two days, thousands came to see the violence that was done to him. In September of 1955, the two men who were accused of killing Emmett Till were placed on trial. Alan Spears stands in the courthouse in Sumner where the trial was held. He's with the National Parks Conservation Association. You have to remember that maybe a week or two before, Mamie Till Mobley had held the open casket funeral for her son, Emmett. And because of that funeral, national attention had now turned to Mississippi. That's why this courthouse is the third site of the Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley National Monument. So what you're looking at is a modest courthouse on the second floor of a building in Sumner, uh, Mississippi, that would have been packed to the gills in September of 1955. Here, an all-white, all-male jury acquitted the two men who murdered Till. The two later confessed to the crime in a paid interview for a magazine, but nothing ever happened to them. 
This injustice is also explored through the Emmett Till Interpretive Center, which is just across the street from the courthouse. Now, for Spears, the National Park designation provides a bit of narrative justice for Emmett Till, something Till and many others who were met with unjust violence weren't afforded while they were alive. We say their names to make sure that we honor their lives and that we remember them. And as long as their names are spoken, they will never be forgotten. And we do that by saying Emmett's name and by saying Mamie's name and by remembering. That gets us there. It doesn't get us all the way, but it gets us there, at least a little bit closer. Today would have been Emmett Till's 82nd birthday. For NPR News, I'm Maya Miller in Sumner, Mississippi. All right, the TV dating show The Bachelor is trying something new this fall. He's Gary. And I'm your first golden bachelor. Gary Turner is 71 and will be matched up with women 65 and older, which is a first for The Bachelor. For some viewers, it'll be a peek into a world of dating they don't see too often. But for Tom Blake, this is right up his alley. For seniors who become single, maybe through a divorce, could be through a death... It's a whole new ballgame. It's a whole new challenge. And they need to know what to avoid, how to start. Tom Blake has written a column called Finding Love After 50, and he's done that column for 29 years. He tells readers how to navigate through the dating pool in later life, and his champs, as he likes to call them, range in age from 50 to 90. Blake's advice for newly single seniors is to start slowly, but seize the moment when you feel a spark with someone. You just don't have that many opportunities, so be assertive. He's not the only one with advice. Journalist Francine Rousseau has some, too. She is the author of Love After 50, and she says senior dating has its perks, especially when it comes to learning from past relationships. For most people, there's not a lot of playing around or playing games. They're serious. This is what they want. Rousseau suggests writing down a checklist of what you're looking for in a partner, and that's what helped her find out what she wanted in a companion after the death of her second husband. You also need to be prepared for rejection, which can happen at any age. Rousseau says you should know that you will be strong enough to handle it. Anybody your age who's been widowed or divorced or lost a person you love, you've survived far worse than having somebody just dump you after two dates. As for The Golden Bachelor, Rousseau is optimistic about how the show will depict dating later in life. I do hope that it indicates to people that at 71, you're available. You have what it takes. never too late. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, why analysts say Twitter's rebranding to the logo X could mean an expensive loss for the social media platform. It's 719. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Museum of Science. Maneuver through vibrant, mind-bending illusions, 3D puzzles, and kinetic play at the new traveling exhibit, Mazes and Brain Games. Tickets at MOS.org. 
You may have noticed some extra charges on your receipts lately. Booking fees, processing fees, service fees, and they might look small, but they can add up fast. It's a way for firms to raise prices without raising prices. I'm Juana Summers. How hidden fees are making everyday purchases more expensive on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Partly sunny with a high near 88 today. There's a slight chance of some isolated showers in the late afternoon. Tonight, mostly cloudy and a low of 68. Tomorrow, sunny and a high near 90. Right now, it's 72 degrees in Boston. How do you not run out of new things to say? That's music from the late Tony Bennett. It's from his 1986 album, The Art of Excellence. That album was seen as one that revived his career, and it was first played on the radio here in Boston. Right now at WBUR.org, check out Andrea Shea's story on why the album was played here and learn about Bennett's other links to New England. Time you hear her name I know the way I feel for you It's now or never The more I love, the more that I'm Support for NPR comes from this station and from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. From EBSCO with EBSCO Community, where libraries and library service providers come together to share ideas around open access, open source, and open infrastructure at communities.ebsco.com. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We've heard a lot on NPR about climate change this summer which is inevitable given the temperatures. And climate change influences other stories like migration to the United States from Central America, which is also affected. Some farmers in Honduras are trying to adapt where they are. NPR's Joel Rose has the final part of our series, Uprooted. It's late in the day by the time Dionisio Cordova reaches his family's farm in a tranquil valley in northwest Honduras. Geese honk protectively as Cordova shows visitors around his farm in the fading dusk light. As you can see, this field has been cleaned out, and we're going to grow watermelon. Cordova is 27, wearing a faded baseball hat and a dusty plaid shirt. During the day, he teaches farming and water management at a technical school in the nearby town of Maquilizo. He says things have changed a lot since his father used to work this same farm. Before, we worked based on well-established agricultural cycles. We knew that at the beginning of May, we could start preparing the land and the rains were stable. We used natural rain cycles. Now we can't rely on that. That's significant because farmers in Honduras have historically relied on rainfall as their only source of water, and most still do. Cordova and his sister are trying to keep the family farm going, 
experimenting with different crops like yucca that are more tolerant of drought, and taking out a loan to add irrigation, basically doing whatever they can to make it work. No es que sea imposible. Es que... It's not impossible to stay in agriculture, but it's become complicated. What I see is that old practices are not viable anymore. We're being forced to implement new technologies. Agriculture experts say farmers in Honduras will need to adapt to erratic rainfall patterns caused by climate change. That means a shift to new crops, new methods to conserve water, and more education about how to make it all work. But all of that requires investment in a country that's one of the poorest in the Western Hemisphere. Here's the president of Honduras, Xiomara Castro, speaking at the UN in New York last September. The industrialized nations of the world are responsible for the serious deterioration of the environment. But they make us pay because of their onerous lifestyle. The U.S. has pledged lots of money to fight the root causes of migration in Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, though relatively little of it is aimed at addressing climate change. The Biden administration has announced more than $4 billion in commitments from the private sector, on top of more than a billion dollars in aid. But only a small fraction of that money, roughly $54 million, is directly pledged to climate change projects. And the needs in Honduras are huge. Almost 30 percent of the population works in agriculture and the vast majority are small farmers. Josue Leon is a climate scientist at Zamorano University in Honduras. He says adaptation requires access to water. When farmers have water, they can grow food all year round. Having water is an adaptation method that generates income. Leon is also a farmer himself, just like his parents and grandparents. He says his country is still getting the same amount of rain. But the extremes have gotten more extreme, with heavier rainfall events punctuated by longer stretches of drought. Leon says it is possible to adapt to those conditions. First, we need an irrigation system. Number two, we need to learn how to use water more efficiently. A greenhouse is the way to do that. But those kinds of investment are far beyond the means of most farmers here, who have limited access to banks or loans. And so far, Leon doesn't see much help coming for small farmers, either from the industrialized countries of the north or from the Honduran government. If you ask me if all farmers can adapt, I'd say yes, if the government organized farmers and spent some resources on this. In fact, Leon says there's an example of successful adaptation in his own family, his brother-in-law, Edwin Guillen. Guillen opens the gate to the greenhouses where he grows tomatoes, in a small town called San Jeronimo in western Honduras. It's protected from rains, winds, hurricanes, and bugs. We also have a drip irrigation system, and we use less chemicals here. Inside the greenhouses, there are hundreds of tomato plants in plastic pots, lined up in neat rows, growing all year round. We planted these 22 days ago, and these ones here are about 110 days old. For now, Guillen sells his tomatoes to local grocery stores, but he dreams of someday exporting his crop to North America. Guillen knows that he's lucky. He has a steady source of water from a spring that was tapped by a project supported by the U.S. government. He was able to get a loan to pay for the greenhouses and the rest of his irrigation system. Guillen has some of his own money to invest, too, money he saved when he was working in the U.S. He went there to look for his father, who migrated when Guillen was five years old. We are a family that was broken up by migration when my father left. He stayed in contact with us for a year only, 
and it was very hard growing up without him and to lose contact with him. Guillen says he tracked his father down in Baltimore. I found him, but he didn't want to come back. I'm the oldest of three brothers and knew I had to come back to help my brothers and work our land. Eventually, Guillen says he moved on and forgave his father. Now Guillen is a father of four himself and a successful farmer with a big house and a shiny new truck. And his greenhouses create steady year-round employment for more than a dozen workers. It's a different story for Dionisio Cordova, the farmer in northwest Honduras we met a few minutes ago. There are more dogs and geese than people on his family's farm. Cordova has only one employee. He and his sister both have day jobs that allow them to invest in the farm. Their attachment to the land isn't just business, though. It's also sentimental. This is my family's land, Cordova says. Most of Cordova's cousins have moved away. Six of them live in California, and they call often, trying to get him to join them. So you're here. Por qué? Buena pregunta. Muy buena pregunta. He pauses for a long moment before answering. I've been raised in agriculture. When I was a child, I remember my dad carrying me on his shoulders to inspect the land and the crops. So it's rooted in me. It's who I am. In other words, this land is home. And Cordova isn't ready to give up on his home yet. Joel Rose, NPR News, Maquilizo, Honduras. This report was produced by Marisa Peñalosa. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. Mail thefts are up sharply, as are attacks on postal carriers. That has the U.S. Postal Service instituting new safety measures, but critics say they don't go far enough. It's 7.29. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden will sign a proclamation today establishing a national monument across three sites in the U.S. honoring Emmett Till, a 14-year-old black boy who was brutally killed in 1955. Maya Miller with the Gulf States Newsroom visited the site in Mississippi where the body of Till was discovered. The first site that I visited was called Grable Landing. That's where Emmett Till's pulled out of the Tallahatchie River. What struck me there was the sign explaining what happened. Um, it's bulletproof, and that's because at least three previous signs had been shot up. And it was just really quiet considering the violence of that place. The National Monument will also honor Emmett Till's mother, Mamie Till Mobley, whose activism served as a catalyst to the civil rights movement. Russia's breach of a grain deal with Ukraine is having a negative global impact. That's according to U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres, who's urging Moscow to allow shipments of grain to resume. I call on the Russian Federation to return to the implementation of the Black Sea Initiative in line with my latest proposal. The Kremlin says it's impossible for Moscow to return to the Black Sea Grain Initiative until an agreement related to Russian interests is honored. 
This is NPR News in Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The state-run family shelter system is now serving nearly 5,000 families. That's the highest number in its history. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel reports that state officials are scrambling to find more shelter beds because more families in need arrive every day. State officials say the Commonwealth faces an unprecedented increase in the number of families experiencing homelessness. They attribute it to high housing costs and new immigration. Advocates say other factors include the end of pandemic eviction protections. Kelly Turley with the Massachusetts Coalition for the Homeless says the shelter numbers capture only part of the crisis. The families that are in emergency assistance shelter really are just a small portion of all of the families and all of the people in Massachusetts who are experiencing homelessness given the eligibility criteria and limitations for the program. Massachusetts is the only state that by law must provide shelter for all eligible families. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. Three years after seeing its last swimmers, the L Street Beach in South Boston will reopen to the public today. The beach was closed in 2019 because of the renovation to the Curley Center. That community center reopened, but the waterfront remained closed because of endangered birds on the beach. Voters in Maine will likely decide whether the state should restore language about tribal obligations to its constitution. The language requires Maine to honor tribal treaties. Those treaties remain law, but were removed from printed versions of the constitution. The Maine legislature is close to passing a proposal to restore that language. Voters will need to give it final approval before the change is made. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose. Latin American fare with a modern twist. Drop off lunch catering for all occasions in Greater Boston. LaCuchara.com. Tonight at Fenway, the Red Sox will take on Atlanta. Boston is 12-5 and five so far this month. We'll have highs in the upper 80s today under skies with a mix of sun and clouds. There's a slight chance of afternoon showers, mostly cloudy tonight, and it dips into the 60s. Tomorrow, sunny with highs near 90. Right now, it's 72 degrees in Boston. Your WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed. Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Elon Musk has decided to rebrand Twitter as X. The social media site has a new capital X logo and a massive X has been projected onto the company's San Francisco headquarters at night. Let's talk about what the X branding means with NPR tech correspondent Derek Kerr. Derek, good morning. Hi, Steve. Elon Musk, okay, I get it. There's SpaceX. There's the Tesla Model X. What, what makes Musk think so much about X? 
You know, he has been obsessed with the letter X for a long time. And yet when he announced that um, he was rebranding Twitter to X, he even posted a photo on Twitter making a big X sign with his arms and the caption, not sure what subtle clues gave it away, but I like the letter X. So going back many decades, um, one of Musk's early company was already called X.com. And that eventually became PayPal. And back then, the X branding was not popular. According to the book PayPal Wars, customer research showed people didn't like the X name and preferred PayPal. Oh, okay. So there's already a track record here, but we're going back to X. What are people saying about X when they're writing, you know, things on X? Yeah, well, so far, it's only been a, a day. The drama has been instant. Um, as construction crews took down the big Twitter sign at its San Francisco headquarters yesterday, the cops showed up. The police later said no crime was committed. So I spoke to Marisa Mulvihill. Um, she's a branding expert from marketing, marketing company Profit. She says we've seen companies like Uber and Google that initially had these names that were kind of meaningless become mm-hmm. quite meaningful in our lives. However, with a name like X, there's just a lot of negative associations. I've already heard some of the jokes about, you know, why it's perfect because it's exactly what he's done, right? He's eliminated jobs, eliminated features, eliminated advertisers, eliminated users. So really excising all of it. (laughs) Excising, go on. Yeah, I know. That was a good one. Um, And she also points out to another problem. The other concern is that it is oftentimes used for, I don't even want to say this out loud, but pornography. (laughs) So that's also a real challenge that could be complicated in search browsers. Um, Could rebranding to X be a way of changing the subject from all the other problems at the company formerly known as Twitter? Yeah, yeah, definitely. We saw Facebook do this a couple of years ago when it was rebranded as Meta. At that time, Mm -hmm. Facebook was grappling with all these leaks from the whistleblower, Francis Haugen. And some people could be saying this is Elon Musk's way of making a pivot away from all this turmoil and trouble. And he's trying to turn this X into an app that does everything with banking and money transfers. But so far, we really only have a name change. What becomes of the old logo? Uh, well, the little blue bird has gone off the website, the Twitter sign is off the San Francisco headquarters, and people are making all these jokes about do we tweet or do we ext? And so it really shows how ingrained Twitter language has become and the word tweet. And now Musk is just walking away from all of that brand equity. Mm, wow. Okay. NPR tech correspondent Derek Kerr, thanks very much. <laughs> Thank you. next story bothers me. I have a postal carrier. I see them. They come and go, all kinds of weather, delivering stuff. And now we find there's been a big jump in robberies of postal service mail carriers. More than 400 were accosted last year and just over 300 so far this year, which is only around half over. The agency has expanded a crime prevention initiative known as Project Safe Delivery in an effort to protect postal workers and their packages. WWM's Chuck Quirmbach reports from Milwaukee. Milwaukee is one of the cities that's been a trouble spot. Just weeks ago, the Justice Department announced indictments against five Milwaukee men accused of the armed robbery of postal carriers. And there was more tragic news last December when Milwaukee letter carrier Andre Cross was shot to death while delivering mail. 
During a vigil, Cross's former supervisor, Tracy Merrill, remembered the man she called Dre, saying she appreciated his supportive spirit. We all got a job to do, but we still have to have an open heart. And Dre was that open spirit. He encouraged me and when I was down. He encouraged me. Always encouraging words. Federal prosecutors eventually charged two men with murder and two alleged accomplices with lying to investigators. The criminal complaint suggests some of the defendants may have been receiving illegal drugs in the mail. The matter has not yet gone to trial. The president of the letter carrier's local union, Dave Skoranek, says many of his 1,900 members walk a route and interact with the public. And he says those troubling incidents do have an impact. I know people are reluctant, especially if there's something major like the murder of Brother Cross, where people are reluctant to go into the area. But it is our job, it is our duty to serve the American public, and we'll continue to do it. The Postal Inspection Service investigates crimes against letter carriers. In an effort to track down people who are targeting them, it runs appeals seeking the public's help online. It's Wanted Wednesday. This week's suspects are wanted for the robbery of a letter carrier in Milburn, New Jersey on May 13th. The inspection service offers rewards of up to $50,000 for information leading to arrests and convictions. Project Safe Delivery includes more extensive steps. They're installing thousands of high-security collection boxes to make it harder for thieves to steal mail. They'll also replace about 49,000 so-called arrow keys that are used to open blue mailboxes with electronic locks. It's those keys criminals want to steal checks and other items. The Postal Service hopes the measures will spur more people to apply to become mail carriers. There are more than 630,000 postal workers in the United States, about one-third of those deliver the mail. At a recent job fair at the Milwaukee Hampton Branch Post Office, manager Lydia Caldwell says any new hires will find she's dedicated to employee safety. We give safety talks every day. We're consistently making our carriers aware. Always be aware of your surroundings. We go out on the street and we spot check to make sure that our carriers are safe. The Postal Inspection Service urges customers to get involved in neighborhood watch groups to spread awareness about threats to people delivering the mail. Also, to keep an eye out for their carrier, and if they see something suspicious, call 911. For NPR News, I'm Chuck Pernbach in Milwaukee. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR's Morning Edition, opponents say they'll appeal to the Supreme Court after Israel's parliament passed a new law yesterday overhauling the judiciary despite violent protests across the country. Partly sunny and upper 80s today with a slight chance of afternoon showers. Tonight mostly cloudy and it may dip into the 60s. Tomorrow sunny and near 90. Right now it's 73 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo. The Massachusetts Sales Tax-Free Weekend is August 12th. 
Hunter Douglas Automated Power View Shades at Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. And Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Medical, regulatory, and other careers at VRTX.com. The National Convention of the NAACP gets underway here in Boston tomorrow. Denisha Sullivan is the president of the group's Boston branch. She spoke with W.B. Wars and and Wameka for the Common Podcast about what having the National Convention here means for the city. The National Convention has not uh, been in Boston since 1982. Um, And certainly, I I say this as a fourth-generation Bostonian, uh, we know that we're not the Boston of 1982. deeply steeped in in the racial strife and tension of the the 1980s. But we also recognize that we're not quite where uh, where we want to be. We still have work to do here in the Commonwealth and here in the city of Boston to ensure that everyone has access to the great opportunities that exist here. And so I'm looking forward to the Boston branch helping to tell our story, being honest about our history, um, being um, proud of the progress that we've made, but really being humble in the work that we still have to do. You say that uh, we still have work to do here. What does that work look like specifically? Well, I mean, the reality is we still have a public education system that is not meeting the needs of all of our children. We have far too many children uh, who are not able to read at grade level. We still have far too many um, of our students who um, are not able to access the type of education we know they need in order to be college and career ready. Um, We also know that here in the city of Boston, um, we've got a lot of work to do on the economic opportunity side. We have many um, small uh, Black-owned and other people of color-owned businesses that are simply not getting access to the contracts they need for their businesses to thrive. Listen to more of that conversation on today's episode of The Common. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Charles Schwab, dedicated to serving clients with 24-7 live support. The people at Schwab are committed to helping clients on their investing journey. Learn more at schwab.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldin. In Rhodes, a beach hotspot in Greece, some 19,000 people have been evacuated in the face of wildfires that threaten to burn villages and tourist destinations. Many of those evacuated are on vacation and had to flee with what they had, leaving behind their travel documents. Tourists are sheltering in school buildings and conference centers. And one of the world's largest tour operators, TUI, announced it would cancel all of its flights to Rhodes through Friday. So what does this mean for Greece's economy, which relies heavily on tourism? For more on this, we turn to Doug Lansky, a global tourism expert based in Sweden. Good morning. Good morning. So this mass evacuation, the wildfires, the heat, how is this going to impact tourism in Greece? 
I think it already has impacted tourism widely, and not just in Greece, but mm. across the southern part of Europe. It's just been so incredibly hot. So even if it's not on fire, the it's been scorching hot, and people have been fleeing some of these areas already. And as you as you mentioned, it's an enormous part of the economy, and and they're reeling. It's been this is very difficult. It's a, a trying time for them, but it may not be as bad as it seems everywhere. Okay. What do you mean by that? Because if it's not going to get less hot next summer, all the scientists agree that this is something here to stay. That's true. So I think one of the things that's happened post-COVID is a lot of people are flexing their time a little bit more. Mm. Uh, and they're not going to the office uh, five days a week and they realize they can work from just about anywhere, which means that they may not need to go as many people need to go just during the summer months, uh, the classic time to go traveling. And therefore, they might be able to take advantage of some of those times, those long weekends in the fall or a week here and there when it's better time to visit. Mm. And are you seeing that trends for tourism are down across Europe then? Yeah, I think we're going to start to see that. This is going to take some time as this sort of, as this trend sort of starts to roll out. But this is one of the biggest trends I've noticed after COVID is that this kind of new way of working and how that's going to start to affect travel. But there's still people with the kids, are that's when they're out of school and people are going to be able to travel to those spots only in the summer. So it's going to continue for some time. And it's one of those things you do it one year, you realize how crazy hot it is and you mm-hmm. kind of like you burn your fingers on the stove a little bit there and you, you realize you're not going to do that anytime soon again. You start thinking, oh, my vac- my big vacation is now in January. Exactly. Um, but right now it's really serious in Greece with these wildfires, tourists having to flee. What are you hearing from um, your sources in, in Rhodes and other parts of Greece like Horfu? Right. So first of all, let me just kind of paint a little bit of a picture. Rhodes looks like a, an arrowhead, and the tip of it is in the north points northeast. Mm -hmm. And it's about 50 miles from one end to the other. And the two wildfires, one's called the Eloisa wildfire, the other's called the Lerma wildfire. They're sort of in the middle of the country. And the prevailing winds go straight north to south. So where most of the hotels are in the sort of the northeast part of of Rhodos, I I called one of the hotels here that looked like it would be right in the line of fire. And they told me with the prevailing winds, it's just completely missing them. They had clear blue skies, there's no interruption in electricity, and everything is fine. I thought I actually might try to book there, so I checked on the prices. They've only dropped about 10%. And for most of the tourist areas on the island, everything is up and running, they said. So it's important that you call the hotels, check the conditions, and most of them are still very much open for business. Doug Lansky is a tourism expert based in Sweden. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Take care. This is NPR News. Coming up at 8.15 on WBUR's Morning Edition, one of the largest Protestant groups in the U.S. is shrinking quickly. Congregations leaving the United Methodist Church say they're doing so over its positions on LGBTQ plus clergy and same-sex marriage. It's 7.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Avita at ART. Last chance to see the groundbreaking revival of the Tony Award-winning rock opera. Don't keep your distance. Closing Sunday, amrep.org. 
It's time to play America's favorite jackpot game. The Lottery. A few big winners. Tonight we have another life-changing jackpot for you. But a lot of huge losers, including every state that relies on lottery revenue. Only 20 to 30 percent of every lottery dollar goes to the state beneficiary to the fund, so it's a lot less than people think. Well, where does the rest of the money go? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. Doctors and medical workers in Israel are on strike amid mass protests against a new law that limits the power of the country's Supreme Court. The Department of Justice is suing the state of Texas over a floating barrier meant to stop people from crossing the border through the Rio Grande. And President Biden says he'll designate a national monument to Emmett Till, the black teenager whose murder was a catalyst in the civil rights movement. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include the law firm of Nutter, McLennan and Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. Sun mixed with clouds today, along with temperatures in the upper 80s. There's a slight chance of afternoon showers that may be accompanied by gusty winds. Mostly cloudy in upper 60s overnight, then sunny tomorrow and near 90. It's 74 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. Mississippi is home to many in the black farmer community, a group that's pretty small and aging across the U.S. And as many of these farmers grow older, some are worried that their traditions might die with them. Danny MacArthur of the Gulf States Newsroom has the story of an effort to cultivate the next generation of black farmers. Alonzo Miller is showing around his farm in Louisville, Mississippi. There are cows, vegetables, and fruit trees. This farm has pretty much everything that you need to provide food for yourself, um, water. But Miller's scaling back. He'll be 70 soon. And all that land is too much to handle. Miller is a fourth-generation farmer and a pastor in his church. His family taught him how to preserve the soil and provide the land whatever it needs to be self-sustaining. He wants to pass on this knowledge, but he worries that it will end with him. His children have other careers. And that, for us older farmers, to not have our sons and daughters involved in that, it's a hurting thing. Black farmers in Mississippi, like Miller, are an aging demographic. Nationally, it's estimated that there are less than 50,000 left. And they have all of this ancestral knowledge that could help the next generation figure out how to keep growing as the climate changes. Miller is part of a local farming cooperative where he mentors other beginning farmers. Those kids that do want to learn, they still are part of your family. These older farmers, they're basically libraries, says Teresa Irvin Springs. Members of the cooperative taught her family the basics, like how to drive a tractor and install irrigation. They (laughs) actually told us how to plant, how deep to plant, you know, um, everything. That was six years ago. And soon, Urban Springs says she noticed that she and her husband, Kevin, were among the youngest farmers in that cooperative. We thought to ourselves, if we're the youngest, you know, and we're in our 50s, well, we're going to be in trouble if we don't harness or get this knowledge so we can pass it on. So she and her husband are in the early stages of opening a training center that will pass on sustainable practices from older Black farmers to younger ones. 
they also mentor other new farmers, like Markel Thompson. Meeting Kevin and Teresa kind of opened the door. Thompson oversees his family farm in McCool, Mississippi. He's 28 and grew up in Chicago. He came here to start farming last year after his grandfather passed. The Springs family showed him skills like how to set a planning schedule and manage a farm. And they connected him with mentors like Miller. Pastor Miller, for example. Every time I see him, I run up to him with a sense of urgency, passion, like, Pastor Miller, this was going on. Now, he's preparing his first pasture for planning. Often, he'll spend hours just exploring the land. It's partly fun, but also practical. I was back there searching for a well that's supposed to be just open somewhere, and I need to find that before I fall in there. That would be terrible. <laughs> Thompson just bought the building that will be his future home. It sits on top of a hill from where he can look out over his new farm. For NPR News, I'm Danny McArthur in Tupelo, Mississippi. Hip-hop is 50 years old. An official anniversary is coming next month. So we asked cultural critic Kiana Fitzgerald to identify some of the game-changing moments in hip-hop history. She starts with the first rap album to become a nationwide hit, the 1980 debut of Curtis Blow. Clap your hands, everybody, if you got what it takes. Because I'm Curtis Blow, and I want you to know that these are the words. Curtis Blow was the first rapper to sign a major label deal. He really showed all the aspiring MCs from the very beginning of hip-hop that permanence was possible. Breaks on a bus, breaks on a car, breaks to make you a superstar. Breaks to win and breaks to lose, but these here breaks rock your shoes. And these are the breaks. Break it up, break it up, break it up. Prior to this album, hip-hop was a very in-the-moment live, you have to be a part of the action right now kind of experience. The park jams and the parties that really were the breeding ground for hip hop, where it took form. This album really took all of those elements and distilled it into one specific experience that made other hip hoppers realize like, oh, I can do this too. I can, you know, put something on wax and, you know, make money from it or tour from it or support my family with it. If your woman steps out with another man, and she runs off to them to Japan. Curtis Blow had a single called Christmas Rappin' that was successful. And the label that he ended up signing with said, well, then you can do another single. And if that's successful, then you can do an album. And that second single was The Breaks, which is the, one of the most celebrated hip hop songs in the history of the genre. Curtis Blow has said that, you know, the concept for this song was really a tribute for all the breakers around the South Bronx and Harlem in the early days of hip hop. And he wanted to do a tribute song where he could kind of give as many breaks as possible so they could get down and do their b-boying and b-girling and just show off their moves. Throw your hands up in the sky and wave around from side to side. And if you deserve a break tonight, somebody say, all right. Curtis Blow the album and Curtis Blow himself were really the blueprint for the format of hip hop that we know and love today. From, you know, the cross genre influence that he kind of explored with um, Way Out West. Way Out West was kind of indicative of a Lil Nas X coming up later and really experimenting with this country hip hop cross experience. So he really gave his successors a lot of room to move freely and creatively. Way out West from Way 
Way back east, coming from the place you'd expect to leave. There came a stranger dressed in black from a Harlem town a long way back. His debut was exactly what hip hop needed to catch fire and really become what it is today. Fiona Fitzgerald's new book is called Ode to Hip Hop, 50 albums that define 50 years of trailblazing music. She breaks down another album next week. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. Partly sunny and upper 80s today. There's a slight chance of showers late this afternoon. Tonight, cloudy and upper 60s. Then a sunny Wednesday with temperatures near 90. Right now, it's 74 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Scientists say the unusual heat waves gripping North America, Europe, and Asia would have been virtually impossible without climate change. It's Tuesday, July 25th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, demonstrations grow violent in Israel in response to the passage of a new law overhauling the judicial system. This has animated so many protesters because it is the Supreme Court that is the main protector of so many individual freedoms in Israel's system of government. Also this hour. People do not have the opportunity to elect the candidate of their choice. We're talking about school boards, city councils, county commissioners. A Texas voting map drawn by Republicans is being challenged in court and may impact elections nationwide. Plus, a record number of families seeking help in Massachusetts have overwhelmed state and private shelters. Partly sunny in 80s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. A new international study finds heat waves baking the northern hemisphere this summer would be nearly impossible, but for climate change. NPR's Nathan Rott says the scientists conclude things are worse because humans are making them worse. It says that the recent heat waves in America and southern Europe, which have broken records and put tens of millions of people under heat advisories and warnings, would be, quote, virtually impossible, end quote, without human-caused climate change. And that recent heat waves in China were made 50 times more likely because of it. NPR's Nathan Rod reporting. President Biden is poised to sign a proclamation today honoring Emmett Till. Today would have been his 82nd birthday. The black boy was kidnapped and lynched in 1955. The white men accused of murdering him were acquitted by an all-white jury. The monument will also honor Till's mother, Mamie. It was she who insisted her son's casket be open at his funeral so the world could see how he had been tortured. A potential strike at package delivery company UPS is becoming more likely. A deadline is looming for a union contract to expire. From member station WABE in Atlanta, Christopher Alston reports contract talks are set to resume today. The International Brotherhood of Teamsters represents over half of UPS's workforce. The Teamsters are calling for better pay, particularly for part-time employees, and improved working conditions. Annual profits at UPS in the past two years are close to three times what they were before the pandemic. Both sides have made tentative agreements on some issues, 
but government intervention is possible if a deal isn't reached before July 31st. UPS recently announced plans to train non-union employees to make deliveries if union workers walk, but UPS pilots say they will not cross picket lines and fly during a strike. For NPR News, I'm Christopher Alston in Atlanta. A jury has ordered anti-government extremist Ammon Bundy and his associates to pay more than $50 million to Idaho's largest hospital. It's in connection with armed protests at the hospital last year that led to a security lockdown. NPR's Kirk Siegler reports Bundy was a no-show at the trial that wrapped up last week. In a statement, St. Luke's Hospital says the jury's decision brings accountability to Bundy and his associates, who they say are still engaged in a campaign of intimidation, harassment, and disinformation directed at hospital leaders, doctors, and medical staff. During a two-week civil trial here, attorneys said the militants tried to stage an armed takeover of the hospital. State social workers had hospitalized one of Bundy's associates' malnourished grandsons. It's unclear how much, if any, of the some $50 million in damages will ever get paid. Bundy is apparently continuing to be holed up at his home in a rural area outside Boise, defying an arrest warrant. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Boise. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Democrats on Beacon Hill say they will not be able to pass a bill to reform Massachusetts gun laws before their August vacation. Instead, House leaders say they intend to pick the effort back up in the fall. Supporters say the plan would strengthen rules around how guns are licensed and where they can be carried in the state. It faces growing opposition from gun advocates. Congressman Richard Neal is among the Massachusetts lawmakers pushing for federal relief to help people affected by flooding this month. Alden Bourne reports that Neal visited two communities in the Berkshires yesterday. Neal, who's a Democrat from Springfield, met with local officials in North Adams and neighboring Clarksburg. Roads were heavily damaged in both, and Clarksburg experienced a landslide. Neal says he's hopeful that the state and federal governments can provide financial help for documented losses. This is a very difficult time for a small city like North Adams, community like Clarksburg. But at the same time, if the documentation is carefully constructed, there could be some relief. Last week, Neil joined other members of the Western Massachusetts congressional delegation in a letter to the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture. They asked him to approve the designation of counties with farms impacted by floods as disaster areas. That would allow farmers to access emergency loans and other financial assistance. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. The polls are open right now for a special election to fill a vacant seat on the Boston City Council. The vacancy is in District 8, which covers the Fenway, Back Bay, and Beacon Hill. Kenzie Bach held that seat until she stepped down to become the head of the Boston Housing Authority. Montez Haywood and Sharon Durkin are running to finish out the term through this fall. Both are also planning to run for the seat this fall. Comments from a candidate for governor in New Hampshire are getting a reaction in Massachusetts. Former U.S. Senator Kelly Ayotte announced her run for the Republican nomination yesterday. In her announcement, she called out Lowell and Lawrence as the source of the state's drug problems. Tom Golden is the city manager in Lowell. As a United States senator, I didn't see any solutions that she brought forward that actually uh, made a difference. You know, when you're looking at other 
government websites and you're looking at the, the amount of money that is not spent in New Hampshire for this, I think that uh, if she does become the governor, you know, she'd have the ability to increase funding for substance abuse and mental health services throughout her state. Ayotte says she's running for governor because, quote, New Hampshire is one election away from turning into Massachusetts. Investigators on Martha's Vineyard say a paddleboarder who died was the personal chef of former President Barack Obama. 45-year-old Tafari Campbell went missing on Sunday at Edgartown Great Pond. Police found his body yesterday. They say he was not wearing a life jacket. The Obamas expressed their sympathy yesterday, calling Campbell a beloved part of our family. It's 8.07. WBUR supporters include the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. The Red Sox begin a two-game series with Atlanta tonight at Fenway Park. It'll be mostly sunny today with a chance for showers or storms. It'll be in the upper 80s. Another chance for rain overnight tonight with temperatures in the 60s. Sunny tomorrow and near 90. Right now it's 75 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. California is no stranger to wildfires like the ones we're seeing in Greece right now. It's why researchers and firefighters are uniting to try a new tool. AI. That's coming up in just a few minutes. But first, Israelis woke up today to their three largest newspapers carrying a black front page. The black pages were ads that protesters took out, calling it a dark day for democracy in Israel. Defying more than six months of street protests, the government passed a law limiting a check on its own power. Until now, the Supreme Court in Israel has had the right to reject some government actions it did not consider reasonable. So what happens now that the Knesset stripped that power away? NPR's Daniel Estrin is in Jerusalem and joins me now. Good morning, Daniel. Hi, good morning. So what do things look like today in Israel? Doctors are on strike today protesting the law. Uh, Hospitals are operating on limited schedule. And Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was on TV last night saying he was extending a hand to the opposition. And at the very same time, police trucks were spraying water on protesters who Mm. were blocking major roads for hours. Uh, There were some injuries. And also on, on live TV, we saw in Parliament a right-wing minister brush off a plea for compromise on the law, while Netanyahu sat next to that minister and was just stone-faced, didn't say anything. And commentators today are calling that a symbol that Netanyahu, they say, isn't the one in the driver's seat here. It's his far-right cabinet ministers driving this new law. And one of them said, quote, this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. Okay, so for Israel's government, let's take a broad look at this. How might the government use this law to advance its wider goals? Well, with this law, as Steve said, the Supreme Court can no longer use the clause of reasonability to block the hiring and firing of officials. And legal experts are concerned that the Israeli government could use this to replace professional watchdog officials throughout the civil service with, yes, people for the ultranationalist government. And uh, that could help them rubber stamp 
discriminatory policies against Palestinians, just for an example. One Palestinian lawyer told me about a case where the Supreme Court in the past blocked Israel from building its West Bank separation barrier right through the middle of a Palestinian village, and the court said that was unreasonable, and now the court won't be able to do that. Now, the experts say that there are still other legal principles the court can take in Israel to protect Palestinian rights, but advocates say this law is, you know, it, it's a bigger picture here. It's a first step in a wider move to change democratic institutions to further target Palestinian rights and other things that an ultra-nationalist government doesn't like. For instance, the justice minister recently raised the case of Arab citizens moving into a Jewish majority town as something that should be prevented. Mm, wow. What will you be looking at in the coming days and weeks? Well, groups are already petitioning the Supreme Court, challenging this law. The question is, will the Supreme Court intervene? It never has intervened with the kind of law that was passed yesterday. It's equivalent to a constitutional amendment in Israel. And also defense experts are worried about the readiness of Israel's military. Thousands of volunteer reservists are saying they will not serve now in protest. And uh, there are many enemies on Israel's border, including Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah, who said this crisis in Israel puts Israel on the path of collapse. So Israel is worried about its security right at this moment. And Pierre's Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem. I'm sure we'll be hearing from you much more in the coming days. Thank you, Daniel. You're welcome. The reconstruction in Turkey has not gone exactly as promised. Five months ago, 50,000 people were killed by an earthquake. The president did say there would be rapid reconstruction of hundreds of thousands of homes. But instead, in the city of Adiaman, people are salvaging and reselling old parts of buildings. Here's NPR's Peter Kenyon. Adiaman was among the hardest-hit cities on February 6th. Several months later, the effects of the quake are starkly evident both in the crumpled buildings around the city and in the way lives continue to be disrupted and too often dependent on the kindness of others. Sitting under a tree on a hot summer morning, a group of women and children are waiting outside a bakery. 34-year-old Hatija agrees to speak with the reporter if her surname isn't used. Many of the people approached for this story worried about official retribution if they spoke candidly about the earthquake and the government's response. Hatija is in a temporary apartment after losing her home in the quake, and she's applied to move into a shipping container as her next one. Hatija says she comes here most mornings because the bakery gives away loaves of bread to needy families. We are waiting for our turn, then we get in the queue. I left my kids at home, it's too hot, so I left them at home. Working inside the makeshift bakery, squeezed into a temporary building, Burhan says ever since the earthquake, customers who can afford it leave a donation when they buy their bread. Burhan uses that extra money to make the loaves that he gives away to quake victims each day. Our own bakery was demolished in the earthquake, so we're using this prefabricated structure for now. All the houses are gone, either demolished or uninhabitable, so we stay about an hour away. We rent there because there are no places to rent in this area. With officials saying more than a million people in Turkey were displaced by the quake, Burhan says everyone in downtown Adiyaman is waiting for the government to give the go-ahead for new construction. We're hearing that might begin this month, but it's not clear yet. We can't start before there's an official announcement. Once we see that, we'll start. All at once, the group waiting outside the bakery snaps into a somewhat organized line. They hold out their sacks and receive three loaves each. 
A few children try to come back for more, but get shooed away. Atija says she's heard the government is making plans to provide assistance to people who want to rebuild their own homes, but she's not quite sure how it will work. They say if you want, you can make your building in your lot. The buildings get demolished, so anyone who wants to rebuild, they can do it. That's what I have heard. Officials have been talking about an assistance package for private rebuilding, but it's not ready yet. Some say it will include a half million Turkish lira, nearly $20,000 for rebuilding a house, and half that amount for rebuilding a workplace. But until it's official, nothing is certain. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, stung by criticism immediately after the disaster, is now pointing to progress. He told a Berlin audience recently that all the debris from the quake had been cleared away and reconstruction was underway. But here in Adiaman, it's clear that the rubble has definitely not all been removed. That's the sound of heavy equipment moving into place, preparing to demolish a badly damaged building that's several stories tall. A nearby security guard says the neighbors have been complaining for some time about the cement dust swirling around the neighborhood. Not far away, there's another staple of life in Adiaman these days, empty lots transformed into earthquake junkyards. Doors, window frames, bed springs, and other household items are neatly stacked, and families are browsing for things they can use. I meet a woman named Emine. She's looking for a door. She too fled the earthquake zone in February. Now she says her family is trying to do what they can to rebuild. My house is slightly damaged, but since it's on the ground floor, the inner walls were badly damaged. I just came back after five months. We couldn't stay here. There was no place to stay. Now we came back and we're doing the construction with our kids. We stay on the roof. She says she's glad to be back, though like many people here, she really can't say when life will start to feel normal again. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Adiaman, Turkey. California's trying to adapt to a new reality, the spread of wildfires. And this isn't just a matter of a few bad fire seasons. A study finds that, on average, fires in northern and central California burn five times more land each summer than they did 50 years ago. Climate change. Firefighters and researchers hope to spot fires more quickly and cut response times using artificial intelligence. Zachary Wells is a deputy chief with the Kern County Fire Department in California's Central Valley. The more time we give firefighters, the better chance that we have of containing these incidents before they become large, complex fires that take hundreds, if not thousands, of firefighters to help mitigate. Oh, Kern County needs this. I've been there. A lot of beautiful, mountainous, but dry land where wildfires have been devastating. The program uses a statewide network of cameras and sensors to monitor for wildfires and other potential disasters. Alert California has now teamed up with Cal Fire, the state's fire department, to test an AI tool that can differentiate between smoke and other particles in the air. We're pumping data into the AI. So we characterize the conditions prior to natural hazards, during natural hazards, and after. So we want to prepare and manage Neil Driscoll is Alert California's principal investigator and helped design the program. The data are open source. I give the data we collect to competitors, other AI companies, other universities, other scholars. This problem of extreme climate is bigger than any of us. We need to work together. 
Wells says he sees AI transforming firefighting. A decade ago, firefighters relied heavily on the 911 system. With the help of AI, they can now spot some fires before the first 911 call comes in. The data collected can also be used to predict fire behavior and provide real-time information to firefighters on the ground. We only have so many firefighters. We only have so many engines. And so when we have a report of wildfire, it's important to send an effective response force. Alert California also helps researchers learn about other kinds of natural disasters, such as post-fire debris flows and floods and erosion. You can check out the program's live camera feeds at alertcalifornia.org. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, a new study concludes that climate change is to blame for the deadly heat waves creating dangerous conditions around the world. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service. A dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. And Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. It's time to play America's favorite jackpot game. The Lottery. A few big winners. Tonight we have another life-changing jackpot for you. But a lot of huge losers, including every state that relies on lottery revenue. Only 20 to 30 percent of every lottery dollar goes to the state beneficiary, to the fund. So it's a lot less than people think. Well, where does the rest of the money go? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A half-mile stretch of a bike path along the Mystic River is closed this morning. The Draw 7 Park Path just opened in May, but now it's closed between Assembly Row and the Alford Street Bridge for repaving work. State officials expect it to stay closed through late August. Partly sunny and a high near 88 today. There's a slight chance of some isolated showers in the late afternoon. Tonight, mostly cloudy and a low of 68. Tomorrow, sunny and a high near 90. It's 75 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, where members can learn about the wine, winemaker, and region. Every purchase supports NPR programming, available to adults 21 or older. NPRWineClub.org. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon. In stores or at hintwater.com and from the sustaining members of this NPR station.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. One of the largest Protestant groups in the U.S., the United Methodist Church, is less united than it once was. The denomination has lost about 20 percent of its congregations in recent years. They are leaving in part over the church's stance on welcoming LGBTQ people. NPR religion correspondent Jason DeRose is with us now to help us understand what is happening here. Jason, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Remind us of why these departures are happening now. Well, Michelle, we've seen this story before in other churches, Episcopalians, Lutherans, Presbyterians, a decade or more ago, and now the time seems to have come for the Methodists. You might recall that back in 2019, the United Methodist Church voted on whether to officially change its rules prohibiting LGBTQ clergy and not allowing same-sex weddings. They chose to keep those prohibitions. Now, that was seen as a win for people who called themselves traditionalists, but, and this is crucial, something interesting happened after that vote. A number of church leaders, bishops and others, said publicly they would no longer enforce those rules in protest of the 2019 decisions. So it would seem that it is the folks who support LGBTQ clergy who are leaving, but you are telling us that that's not necessarily the case. Exactly. Most of those leaving are the ones who actually got their way, having the church rules continue to say no LGBTQ clergy, no same-sex weddings. They say they're leaving because of those bishops and congregations that are refusing to follow the official stance of the church, which is that, quote, homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. Well, that sounds so complicated, Jason. So you talked with congregations who were on different sides of this divide. Tell us what you found out. Michelle, I traveled to the Fount Church in Orange County, California. It's currently a United Methodist congregation with about 50 members. Well, the banner over here, come thou fount of every blessing. That's where we get our name. Glenn Hayworth is lead pastor. The fount is Jesus, of course, not us. So uh, when we say we're the fount church, we're referring to our Lord and not ourselves. Hayworth is a lifelong United Methodist, but he says his denomination in general and the local geographic region, called Annual Conference in particular, have been drifting for years from what he calls traditional biblical teachings on morality. Most recent and probably most prominent is the differences of opinion we have with regard to homosexuality, marriage in general, the sexual ethic also in general. And we believe, as do many Christians, that the Bible is very specific in that teaching, whereas this annual conference has decided that uh, that's not important. So the Fount wants to leave the United Methodist Church. Across the denomination, congregations are allowed to disaffiliate if they pay two years' worth of church dues and fund their pension obligations. But here in Southern California, the local annual conference says churches have to also pay 50 cents on the dollar if they want to keep their property. It says it needs the money to fund new United Methodist ministries. The Fount property was just assessed at $6 million. Hayworth says that's far more than his nearly 60-year-old congregation can afford. In 1964, this property didn't cost $6 million, and to pay $3 million now to the annual conference with 50 members is impossible. 
Hayworth says he'll try to negotiate a lower price, but he's not hopeful. Which means that the Fount's only options may be walking away from their building or taking the annual conference to civil court. He thinks that might be ultimately worth doing over LGBTQ clergy and same-sex marriage. It hasn't been healthy for the denomination to be at odds with each other over this issue. Grant Hagia is president of the Methodist Seminary here in Southern California, Claremont School of Theology. The retired bishop says he understands the Fount's dissatisfaction, but he says what's really at stake here is justice, something he believes even a medieval theologian could support. Aquinas would say that if a law is unjust, it's not a law. Laws are human-made, and they can be wrong, immoral. And we believe that this is true of this particular uh, case of exclusion. This is a Hammond organ and our drum set. Kimberly Scott became the new pastor in early July at the 250-member Grace United Methodist Church in South Los Angeles. We have four different choirs, four different groups that sing one each Sunday throughout the month. Scott says as a queer woman, she's grateful for the bishops and church leaders who are willing to break the rules so she can live out her call to ministry. She says that those rules continue to exist at all is heartbreaking. Yet, she's decided to stay and fight. My family came, we're Methodists in the South. So we were Methodists when Methodists were okay with slavery, right? And my family never left. And so I was like, I can't leave over this. If my grandparents stayed, then I can stay through this to see this to the end. That end, Scott believes, will eventually be an official change to the rules when the United Methodist Church gathers for its general conference next year. That's NPR's Jason DeRose, who's still with us. Jason, what, what after this reporting, what does this suggest that the future holds for the Methodist Church? Well, Michelle, it'll be a smaller United Methodist Church when all of this is over. Many people I spoke with stressed their desire for the church to be a big tent where people can disagree but not be polarized. So with 20% of congregations leaving, that tent is now smaller but less polarized. One thing both sides talked about was wanting to make disciples for Christ. And this breakup might be the best way for each side to continue pursuing that goal just in their own ways. And does this suggest any, any sort of bigger story about religion or Christianity in the United States? Well, all of the mainline Protestant churches, Episcopalians, Lutherans, Presbyterians, they're all smaller than they were 20, 30, or 50 years ago. But that may have happened anyway, regardless of fights over sexuality. Fewer and fewer people say organized religion of any kind is important to them. In fact, Michelle, one of the largest groups in the U.S. is now the nuns. That's N-O-N-E-S. Those with no religious affiliation at all. That is NPR religion correspondent Jason DeRose. Jason, thank you so much for sharing this reporting with us. You're welcome. This is NPR News. 
Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. WBUR reporter Gabriela Emanuel tells us how Massachusetts shelters are coping with a record number of families seeking help. It's 829. Coming next month to WBUR City Space, the culture of comic books. Join us on August 2nd for a conversation about comics and graphic novels and meet some of the Boston-based artists behind them. Get information and tickets by visiting WBUR. WBUR.org slash events. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden is announcing new actions to expand mental health care. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports the new rule will push health plans to provide better access to mental health services. The new rule proposed by the Biden administration says health insurance plans need to provide adequate mental health care options. It will also aim to prevent insurance companies from limiting people to more expensive out-of-network rates for mental health care and substance use disorders compared to other medical providers. The White House's new rule doesn't spell out clear repercussions the administration can take if health insurance plans don't comply, but the administration says the rule closes some loopholes that have existed in the past for companies. The rule will be open for public comment for at least 60 days before it can actually go into effect. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, the White House. The Senate will resume debate over the National Defense Authorization Act today. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he's aiming to bring the bipartisan legislation up for a vote by the end of the week. The House passed its version of the bill nearly two weeks ago. That measure contains a number of controversial amendments that are unlikely to make the cut in the Senate. They include reversing a Pentagon policy on abortion. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A new report finds that schools like Harvard and MIT favor applicants from high-income families. The report from Harvard Economist shows that high-income legacy applicants are five times more likely to be admitted to a prestigious college. That's compared to poorer students with similar credentials. Education officials say admissions policies need to be reevaluated since the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action last month. The Department of Education is investigating a complaint from three local groups about the use of legacy admissions at Harvard. Senator Elizabeth Warren is celebrating federal money that will help schools remove lead from drinking water. The grants were announced yesterday in Boston. They'll help schools across the country test for lead. It'll also help them find sources of lead contamination. The Environmental Protection Agency says lead can cause brain damage. They say no amount is safe for children. Climate change is leading to milder and shorter winters across New England. And as Kelsey Hubbard-Rawlinson reports, that's making ticks a year-round problem. Visits to the emergency department for tick bites in the Northeast are already up over 30 percent compared to last year, according to the CDC's interactive tool. 
Dr. Grace Marks, medical director with the CDC in the Office of Vector-Borne Diseases, says early action is key. So if you find a tick attached to your skin, the most important thing is removing it as soon as possible. And you can just do this at home with a plain set of fine-tipped tweezers. She says Lyme disease will take approximately 24 hours from a tick bite for the bacteria to transmit into the bloodstream. But other pathogens can transmit in much shorter periods of time. That was Kelsey Hubbard-Rollinson reporting for the New England News Collaborative. Starting this afternoon, writers on the blue line of the T will get to hear live performances from students at the Berklee College of Music. Today and every Tuesday through August, musicians will perform outside the aquarium station. On Thursdays, there will be music in the morning outside the Wonderland station. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House in Brookline an innovative senior community for those seeking meaning, growth, and purpose in each and every day. GoddardHouse.org. Tonight at Fenway, the Red Sox will host Atlanta. The teams split a two-game series back in May. We'll have highs in the upper 80s today under skies with a mix of sun and clouds. There's a slight chance of showers, mostly cloudy tonight, and it dips into the 60s. Tomorrow, sunny with highs near 90. Right now, it's 76 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the new season of Silent Witness. Every dead body tells a story in this long-running forensic crime drama starring Amelia Fox. New season streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. What happened to China's Foreign Minister Qin Gong? He disappeared from public view exactly one month ago today with no explanation. And then today, China announced it was removing him from office. Qin Gong was a diplomat on the rise. Before his time as foreign minister, he was China's ambassador to the United States. And he came on this program to warn the U.S. over its support for Taiwan. If you know, the Taiwanese authorities emboldened by the United States, you know, keep going down the road for independence. It most likely involve China and the United States, the two big countries, in the military conflict. That was then. Now he's out. NPR international correspondent Emily Fong is covering this. Hey there, Emily. Hey, Steve. What happened to Qin Gong? So long story short, we still don't know. We just have a little bit of news today that he is going to be removed from his post. And Wang Yi, this seasoned Chinese diplomat who just gave up the job, actually, is going to be reappointed. And this is a twist that the rumor mill, which was running full speed in the last month, did not see coming. Here's a little bit about Qing Gong before he became China's ambassador to the U.S. He really became a household name in China when he was a sharp-tongued Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokesperson in Beijing. He's a very experienced handler in European affairs. And then he cut his teeth later on handling protocol. These are the diplomatic rituals of sorts for Chinese leader Xi Jinping when he started making state visits abroad. And that's how Qing really got to know Xi Jinping to win his confidence and to go on to become ambassador to the U.S., then foreign minister. So he said this really fast rise to diplomatic stardom. And it's really strange as a result that less than one year into this job as foreign minister, he's going to stop doing it. 
Yeah, I'm thinking about all the things that would give someone like him job security that you just mentioned, that he would be close to the president, that he was very publicly a hardliner, a tough guy standing up for the Communist Party line. So why would he lose his job? Like with many things these days in Chinese politics, no explanation given. His removal was announced at a very hastily convened meeting of the country's legislature today. And what they discussed at this meeting was only announced uh, in China's evening news about an hour or so ago. And there was one small line about Qing being removed. For now, we know that Qing does keep his title as state counselor. This is the equivalent of a US cabinet level position. And so this indicates to me that he's not in serious political trouble. He's not totally ousted yet from the political establishment, but something serious is going on. Does something about this seem at all unusual for China's diplomatic corps? I mean, absolutely. China's got one of the largest diplomatic corps in the world. They're extremely active post-pandemic, trying to shore up its ties with partners and countries in the region. Qing's last public appearance actually was meeting with Russia's deputy foreign minister in Beijing a month ago. Mm. Um, the fact that Wang Yi, who is now the foreign minister, uh, is, is stepping into this role does mean continuity in foreign relations for China, especially with U.S.-China relations. You know, a lot of U.S. officials have worked with Wang Yi. He's a very experienced diplomat, and he's done the foreign minister job already for about nine years before Qing's appointment late last year. But the fact that Qing has just suddenly disappeared is really disruptive because China's juggling a lot. It's got tensions with the U.S., uh, Russia's war in Ukraine, territorial spats in the Indo-Pacific, just to name a few. And so when the foreign minister, poof, just disappears, starts canceling meetings, foreign dignitaries coming to Beijing start getting his deputies at the table instead with no clue about whether the foreign minister is going to come back and whether what you were talking about the month before still holds, that's very disruptive. And the opaqueness with which China is handling its affairs when it has so much international clout is mystifying. You know, it's extraordinary to watch, but it's also really anxiety inducing. A lot of conversation about this the last few days, and now we know part of the answer, but not the whole thing. Emily, thanks. Thank you, Steve. NPR's Emily Fang. North America, Europe, and Asia have all been hit by sweltering temperatures this month. Triple digits in some cases, and life-threatening heat waves, which all raise the same question as they always do. Is this climate change? NPR's Nathan Rott is covering a new study out today that aims to address that question. Hi, Nate. Hey, good morning, Layla. Okay, so what does the study say? Well, it says that the recent heat waves in America and Southern Europe, which have broken records, as you said, and put tens of millions of people under heat advisories and warnings, would be, quote, virtually impossible, end quote, without human-caused climate change. And that recent heat waves in China were made 50 times more likely because of it. Okay, so a definitive yes, this is climate change. Yeah, resounding yes. I mean, this research was conducted by a team of international scientists working in a collaborative group called World Weather Attribution. Uh, we should say this study has not been peer-reviewed yet because it's what scientists call a rapid attribution study, mm. uh, which is kind of a growing field in climate science. It aims to show the role climate change is playing in an extreme weather event as it's happening or soon after while it's still on the public mind and being talked about on news programs. Mm -hmm. uh, and the researchers found that climate change has not only made these kinds of extreme heat waves more common, but it's also making them hotter. They added El Nino, a natural weather phenomenon, is likely contributing to some of the heat, but the main driver, they say, is fossil fuels. 
Uh, here's Frederica Otto, a climate scientist at Imperial College London, who was involved with the research uh, when she was speaking at a press event yesterday. It's a very boring study. Yes. Okay. From a scientific point of view, there is nothing new because we have known this for a long time and we see exactly what we expected to see. Wow, she sounds annoyed, frustrated. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> if you talk to climate scientists later, like I know you do sometimes, you will hear that a lot. Yeah. Uh, because this isn't new, right? I got pretty much the exact same reaction from other climate scientists and researchers I talked to yesterday who were not involved in this study but had reviewed its findings. Uh, here's Bernadette Woods-Plackey, the chief meteorologist at Climate Central, a nonprofit climate science group. Overall, it is not surprising that there's a climate connection with the extreme heat that we're seeing around the world right now. We know what adding more greenhouse gases to our atmosphere does, and we continue to add more of them through the burning of fossil fuels. So the more heat that we put into our atmosphere, it will translate into bigger heat events. Which is a really important thing to keep in mind, Layla, because a lot of the heat records that we're seeing broken right now in Europe, Asia, America, they are probably going to be broken again in the years to come. I mean, that's a scary thought because it's already so hot. What should people yeah. do? Well, the obvious big picture solution is to stop warming the planet, right? right. <laughs> uh, the international community has pledged to limit global warming increases to about 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit compared to what they were in pre-industrial times. A lot of climate scientists think that goal is already out of reach. Uh, the planet has already warmed nearly two degrees. But the science is overwhelmingly clear that the fewer fossil fuel emissions we put in the atmosphere means a more hospitable planet for humans and animals alike. The other thing that we can do is to look out for each other during a heat wave. Public health officials have been urging people to check in on their neighbors, especially elderly or immunocompromised people, as these hot temperatures continue. Nathan Rott is part of NPR's Climate Desk. Thanks for your reporting. Yeah, thank you, Layla. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the long-term cost to homeowners in the Houston area nearly six years after Hurricane Harvey flooded the region. Partly sunny and upper 80s today with a slight chance of showers. Tonight, mostly cloudy and it may dip into the 60s. Tomorrow, sunny and near 90. Right now, it's 75 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, Cambridge-based Alnayam Pharmaceuticals is partnering with Swiss drug maker Roche to develop a new treatment for hypertension. The deal is worth nearly $3 billion. The treatment is already in mid-stage trials. It would allow patients to be treated with an injection every few months instead of taking pills daily. Lexington-based Greenlight Biosciences is no longer listed for public trading. The biotech is going private following a $46 million acquisition by a private equity group. Greenlight says the deal will help it run more efficiently. Boston-based Commonwealth Care Alliance is the best place to work for disability inclusion. The healthcare service provider earned the title from the American Association of People with Disabilities. It earned top marks in areas like inclusive hiring practices. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com.
This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. There are now nearly 5,000 households in the state-run family shelter system in Massachusetts. That's an all-time high. And more than 1,000 of those families are staying in hotels and motels because there isn't enough room in the shelters. WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel has been following the situation with the emergency assistance system, and she joins us now. Hi, Gabriella. Hi there. How is the state responding to this record level of need? The state is doing a couple of different things. First, officials say they're working to expand shelter capacity. They've opened a new family welcome center to connect families with resources. And they are looking for people who can host new families arriving in the state, at least for their first few days. But I should say the system is undoubtedly strained. We're seeing families showing up in emergency rooms because they just need a place to stay. Earlier this month, one of our main safety net hospitals, Boston Medical Center, had over 130 people sleeping in one of its lobbies, and that was just one night. The hospital leadership basically said this is too disruptive. So now their policy is that families can no longer stay the night. What's contributing to this increase in family homelessness? Yeah, there are a lot of different factors going on here, but here are three big ones. First, the high cost of housing and the high cost of living in Massachusetts is a big factor. Second, some pandemic programs to prevent homelessness have expired. For example, eviction protections ended in March. And third, over the past year or so, there has been a lot of new arrivals coming to Massachusetts and to a bunch of other states in the country. But many of these families are fleeing violence and unrest in other places like Haiti. And one challenge here is that getting a work permit can take a while, and that then can force some people into homelessness and then keep them there. What are people inside the shelter system telling you about the situation? I spoke with Larry Siemens, who runs Family Aid. This is a nonprofit that provides over 100 shelter units for the state. He says these days they are basically always at capacity. These are levels that our agency hasn't seen since World War II. Siemens says about a third of his organization's units are occupied by families that are new arrivals. We're finding families, literally, uh, they've been given a bus ticket by other parties. They arrive in our city, in our communities at night with nothing but their clothes on their back. Gabriella, do all families qualify for the state shelter system? No, no, no. They definitely do not. I actually spoke to an expert about this. Here is Kelly Turley of the Massachusetts Coalition for the Homeless. The families that are in emergency assistance shelter really are just a small portion of all of the families and all of the people in Massachusetts who are experiencing homelessness given the eligibility criteria and limitations for the program. Based on school data, Turley estimates there are more than double the number of kids experiencing homelessness than we see in the state shelter program. That's astounding. How does this impact them? I know. There is evidence that traumas like homelessness have short-term and long-term implications for kids' uh, well-being. I talked to Aura Obando. She is the medical director of the family unit for Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program. The child that was previously potty trained is starting to wet the bed, for instance. Or a child can have more um, behavioral outbursts. Uh, that wouldn't be typical of, you know, how they were pre-homelessness. So those are pretty common. And Obando says this kind of stress can increase the risk for chronic diseases later in life, like diabetes, heart disease, depression, anxiety. The list is pretty long. 
She says this record caseload is a good moment for the state to reevaluate its approach to family homelessness. And instead of going through the shelter system, which she says can be traumatic, she'd like to see other strategies that are common in adult homelessness, like permanent housing with supportive programs to help families find more stability. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel on a record number of families in state shelters. Thank you so much for this really important reporting. Thank you. Top of the hour on WBUR. It's the BBC News Hour. They'll have a report from Yemen, which is entering its ninth year of war, plus the good news on fighting water pollution in the Seine in Paris. It's 8:49. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo. The Massachusetts sales tax-free weekend is August 12th. Hunter Douglas Automated Power View Shades at Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. And Plymouth Rock Assurance who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. You may have noticed some extra charges on your receipts lately. Booking fees, processing fees, service fees, and they might look small, but they can add up fast. It's a way for firms to raise prices without raising prices. I'm Juana Summers. How hidden fees are making everyday purchases more expensive on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. Protests are erupting in Israel after lawmakers there passed a law that limits the power of the country's Supreme Court. The U.S. Postal Service is expanding safety measures as attacks on postal workers increase. And President Biden will designate a new national monument today honoring Emmett Till, the black teenager whose murder catalyzed the civil rights movement. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Fresh Food Generation Restaurant and Catering, from scratch meals that combine New England ingredients with Caribbean and Southern flavors. FreshFoodGeneration.com. Sun mixed with clouds today, along with temperatures in the upper 80s. There's a slight chance of showers, mostly cloudy and upper 60s overnight, then sunny tomorrow and near 90. Right now it's 76 degrees in Boston. Words have power to shake markets, and so do words left unsaid. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by the new Glassdoor app. Professionals can now join real, anonymous conversations within their company, industry, and communities and get answers about careers on Glassdoor. And by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. First negotiations between the delivery company UPS and the Teamsters Union are set to restart today. They're trying to hammer out a new five-year agreement and avert a strike at the end of this month. The end of the month is quite soon. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer has details. 
The Teamsters represent more than 300,000 UPS employees, package handlers, loaders, drivers. Negotiators have already made some progress. UPS has agreed to install air conditioning in delivery trucks. It's also going to eliminate a two-tiered pay structure for drivers, and it'll get rid of forced overtime on scheduled days off. The two sides are still at odds over how much part-time workers make. If these issues can't be resolved before the union contract expires July 31st, the Teamsters say they'll go on strike. At the same time, FedEx pilots have rejected a tentative agreement. They're expected to reopen negotiations with FedEx, probably under the supervision of the National Mediation Board. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser for Marketplace. Now to the power of words to move markets and an economy. Leaders in China are signaling today they won't crack down as heavily on that country's real estate firms, which are dangerously in debt. The signal wasn't actually words, but words that are now missing. Here's the oft-repeated official phrase in China that was not repeated. Ready? Homes are for living in, not speculation. The absence of that phrase was enough to send two indexes of Chinese property shares skyrocketing 12% and 7% today. Marketplace's Nova Safo explains why. China's government has been trying to right the ship in its property sector since August 2020. That's when it introduced its so-called three red lines policy and that infamous speculation phrase. The crux of the policy was limiting the wild borrowing undertaken by property developers, but that meant they were unable to finish construction of many apartment buildings. Some buyers even staged a mortgage boycott. And China Evergrande Group, a developer with hundreds of millions of dollars in debt, defaulted. Many others defaulted too. Now China's leaders are dropping the speculation phrase and say it's time to adapt. The last time they changed tone like this, they slowly got rid of their tough COVID restrictions. Investors are hoping the same will be true for the property sector as well. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace. Hong Kong's Hang Seng stock index closed up more than 4% today. A key index in Shanghai closed up almost 3%. Here, Dow futures are down slightly. S&P futures up slightly at the moment. Yesterday, the Dow closed up half a percent. The 11th day in a row, the Dow closed up. NASDAQ futures at the moment up three-tenths of a percent. The Federal Reserve begins its two-day meeting on interest rates today. Tomorrow, rates will go up by one quarter of a percentage point to fight inflation if they don't go up, unlikely, or if it's more than a quarter of a point, unlikely, I'll call you. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Indeed, a hiring solution that helps businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com slash hire. And by Grammarly, offering Grammarly business to help companies large and small communicate better and move faster with enterprise-grade generative artificial intelligence. Learn more at Grammarly.com slash business. It's been nearly six years since Hurricane Harvey flooded the Houston region. The water caused an enormous $150 billion in damage. There's a deadline next month, August, for thousands of residents to get compensation for when reservoirs backed up into their homes. Houston Public Media's Andrew Schneider reports. Maria Perez and Lisa Johnson bought their house in Northwest Houston nine years ago, not long after they married. Their home was actually within the boundary of the attic's reservoir. Perez says they didn't really think about what that meant. When we bought the house, 
they checked that it had not flooded in a thousand year record. So I guess maybe we weren't concerned about it so much. When Harvey hit, more than three feet of water flooded their home. Johnson lost her grandmother's china cabinet. Perez lost her wedding dress and suffered from asthma attacks during the cleanup. But the worst affected was their eldest son, then two, who was so traumatized he wouldn't talk for a year after the storm. Perez says she wants the federal government to compensate her family so they can move somewhere safer. Literally at the end of the block, there's a sign for the Attics Reservoir, and it's a daily reminder. Every time I come out my street at the stop sign, it's right in front of me, and it's a daily reminder of what could possibly happen again. Rocio and Jose Perez, no relation to Maria, also live within the reservoir, and their home flooded too. Rocio Perez says cleaning up the contaminated house made her husband deathly ill. She says doctors told her it nearly cost Jose his life. They told him that he was going to die because he had E. coli and it had got all in his, in his organs, in his system. The two couples joined a lawsuit against the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. That agency built the attics and the neighboring Barker Reservoir back in the 1940s to protect downtown Houston from flooding. A judge ruled the Corps knowingly didn't buy enough land to adequately store the water in case of a major flood. It had imposed a flowage easement, assuming the right to store water on land it didn't own. And Charles Irvine, co-lead counsel for the plaintiffs, says if residents don't sue, they're effectively giving away money. Those flowage easements will be claimed by the federal government for nothing. The judge ruled residents are entitled to compensation, but they must file claims individually. Irvine says the deadline is August 28th, six years after Harvey. People in the upstream area who do not file will lose their right forever. Of the estimated 10 to 12,000 property owners flooded within the reservoirs, fewer than half have filed claims to date. Meanwhile, the federal government is appealing the judge's ruling. The U.S. Department of Justice declined to comment for this story, citing the act of litigation. In Houston, I'm Andrew Schneider for Marketplace. All right, August 28th. Our producers are James Graham, Ollie Dalbertanson, Ariana Rosas, Alex Schroeder, and Erica Soderstrom. Our senior producer is Meredith Gerritsen Morby. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio. It's the Marketplace Morning Report. You're from APM. American Public Media. Upper 80s today and a mix of sun and clouds. There's a slight chance of showers and those may come with lightning and strong winds at some points. Tonight cloudy and upper 60s, then a sunny Wednesday with temperatures near 90. Right now it's 77 degrees in Boston and the BBC is coming up next. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.